0: Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom.
1: I want to start tonight with one of my very favorite stories from Buddhist history, which is the story of the Emperor Ashoka, who was an emperor in northern India about 250 years or so after the time of the Buddha. it said that in his early career as an emperor, Ashoka was quite bloodthirsty and cruel, and he would often instigate battles in order to gain new territory. It's also said that he was quite an unhappy man. Then one day he ordered a battle that turned out to be particularly terrible, a tremendous amount of loss of life and bloodshed. The morning after that particular battle, he was walking just along the territory where the battle had taken place and saw what a terrible event, really, he had caused to arise. So many corpses and so much bloodshed so much life (laughs) destroyed through the power of his own greed. And said that just at that time, a Buddhist monk went walking through the battlefield looking rather radiant and peaceful and happy. He walked by this emperor who was so miserable. And without saying a single word, somehow the monk's Happiness and peace communicated itself to the emperor so that Ashoka began to follow him, thinking, Why is it that I, who have absolutely everything in the material sense that a human being could ever want, am so unhappy? And here is this monk. He owns nothing other than the set of robes that he's wearing and the begging ball that he's carrying. And he looks so happy. So when he came upon the monk, he basically asked him that. Why is it that you seem so happy? And then the monk taught him something of the Buddha's teaching, which profoundly changed the emperor. He said that instead of waging war and trying to gain new territory and causing such tremendous suffering, he would build hospitals and plant trees and help people and feed people. He completely changed the nature of his kingdom. The Emperor Ashoka is quite famous for erecting these pillars throughout northern India so that as people went on pilgrimage from time to time, they would come upon one of these pillars, which would have certain sayings inscribed upon them. Things like, the first couple of years of my practice were very difficult, but (laughs) then things got a lot easier. The Emperor Ashoka had both a son and a daughter who ordained in the Buddhist tradition and took the teachings from India to Sri Lanka, then Ceylon, and helped transplant them there. From Sri Lanka, the teachings of the Buddha spread throughout Southeast Asia, Thailand, Burma, went on through Northern Asia and all around the world. I really love that story so much because I think of that moment when the monk walked by not saying a single word but so profoundly happy in his being that in fact his happiness changed the course of history because of that moment in Emperor Ashoka's son and daughter and bringing the teaching and all of that we're sitting here in Barry, Massachusetts all of these hundreds of years later It's quite remarkable. I think this means something for all of us in terms of the importance of the quality of our own being, the importance of our own state of mind, and the effect that can have on the world. Because in fact, each of us can be like that monk. It was so powerful a moment, so powerful an encounter, because that monk's happiness wasn't just the ordinary kind of happiness. Normally we define happiness as pleasure, you know, getting what we want or having something come that is nice, that's lovely, trying to hold on to it, protect it, keep it from ever changing. That ordinary kind of happiness is quite wonderful and it's it's great to have nice experiences, but once we start to hold on to them and try to keep them from ever changing, we're lost in that incredible fragility of fear and anxiety and trying to control that which could never ever be controlled. The happiness of that monk was of a radically different order, not so fragile, not so tentative, not sitting on top of so much fear. And it's that happiness that really is the potential for all of us. It consists of many different things. One of my uh, Tibetan teachers once, his name is Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, and he's called Kempo by his students, was once giving a talk describing his life story. He was one of the many thousands of Tibetans who fled their country in 1959 because of the Chinese invasion of Tibet and the quite terrible religious persecution that followed it. In Tibet itself, Kempo had been a very highly revered lama and was an heir to all of the sacred teachings of the different lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. And so he lived in a manner um, that was quite respected and taken care of and so on. And then he fled. He left his family behind, his position behind. He left with about 70 other people on foot to go through the Himalayas to reach the safety of India. He said that one night as the group traveled through the mountains... Chinese soldiers suddenly opened fire, showering them with machine gun bullets, and only five of those 70 were found alive the next day. And they kept going in a very treacherous journey outside of Tibet. Finally got to India, and soon after he arrived in India, Kempo went to Calcutta, found a place to sleep in this Buddhist center there called the Mahabodhi Society, and he went on to say that, even though he had a place to sleep there, he didn't have any money at all to eat with. And so he went begging on the streets of Calcutta. And he said that he was begging just for I mean, what for us is really less than pennies, just so he could have a cup of tea. And it was this tremendously heart-wrenching story, you know, so much pain, so many traumatic circumstances of like leaving. Loved ones behind and setting off and seeing so many people killed and begging on the streets of Calcutta for pennies. And then, just at that point, as Kempo finished up his story of begging in Calcutta, he said, And I was very happy. And it's like my mind went tilt. <laughs> I thought, Happy? <laughs> what do you mean you were very happy? You know, don't you realize you were in these horrible circumstances? all these terrible things had happened. And of course, he went on to talk about the quality of that happiness. It was really a sense of being sustained by the Dharma throughout all of that, sustained by the powers of wisdom and awareness and compassion. He'd gone from having a, a status of tremendous honor, to being a beggar on the streets of Calcutta, surrounded by hopelessness everywhere. And then later on, of course, he went from wandering through India onto an airplane to the United States, where he was again received as a highly revered teacher. What he said was, so many unexpected ups and downs. Who can describe them? Isn't life like a series of dreams? within a vast, dreamlike mirage. And I found it breathtaking to get a glimpse of that quality of mind, that quality of freedom or happiness in another human being that's not bound to conditions, that can sustain one in even extraordinary states of suffering. It was really Kempo's intense love and devotion for the Dharma that bore the fruit of that happiness, even in the midst of tremendous difficulty. And I think that happiness doesn't have even a trace of complacency within it about the suffering of refugees or beggars or those oppressed by political regimes. It wasn't a kind of self-indulgence or sense of being a part from the suffering of anybody. It was, in fact, the very happiness that gave him the energy and gives him the energy to keep on serving the sentient beings, serving all beings that he encounters. And so it is amazing to actually sense that possibility and to recognize that It's like a celebration of the Dharma, and a celebration of the human spirit, and a reminder of the possibility of our own great potential. One main component of that kind of happiness that can sustain us in any circumstance is the power of awareness. We can take refuge in the power of awareness which can provide us a sense of wholeness and peace no matter what is happening. That's why I think sometimes it's called the miracle of mindfulness, because it's a miraculous quality. The poet Emerson said, what is life but the angle of vision? And mindfulness is that sense of looking at how we look at things. We can sense the refuge that awareness gives us because how we look at things is everything. We don't have to give in to overwhelming anxiety or feeling defeated when things are difficult because the awareness of them is what is so important. We don't have to feel apathetic. We don't have to feel hopeless because the awareness of the difficulty is what's most important. There are so many things, so many experiences that come and go, some pleasant, some terribly unpleasant. Sometimes we are in a situation of being revered, and cared for. And sometimes we're not. We're really out there fending for ourselves in effect on the streets of Calcutta one way or another. So many dreamlike images, so many experiences. But no matter what, we have the capacity to be aware of them. As I mentioned on the first night, because this is another kind of anniversary season for IMS, in a lot of ways we're um, getting very reflective and reminiscent about the past. And I can remember, again, those first family courses that I mentioned on the first night where the parents of our friends and peers would come to sit in order to find out about this rather bizarre thing that their children seem to have gotten into. And uh, one of our friends was quite apprehensive about her mother coming to sit here. And she said, you know, my mother is the kind of woman who's going to say, those goddamn birds kept me up all night. (laughs) And sure enough, (laughs) her mother was here like two days. And she came into the office and she said, those goddamn birds kept me up all night. But by the end of the week, her experience was different. And you realize, in seeing something like that or experiencing something like that within oneself, that there are so many ways to hear a sound. We can hear the sound of those birds with great resentment, wishing we were back in New York, (laughs) 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 or we can Or we can hear that sound and find it rather pleasant and think, oh, isn't this lovely out in the country? We might enjoy it for a moment, let go, go back to sleep. There's so many ways to hear a sound. There's so many ways to experience a feeling in the body the arising of an emotion or thought in the mind. There's so many ways to experience life that depend on the quality of awareness that we're bringing forth. It is amazing to think about breaking out of our conditioning and really being free, no matter what is happening, with that constant, dreamlike flow of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and all of the different changes that are inherent to being alive. Still to be happy, still to be free because of being able to be aware. To think that awareness does not demand a certain thing to be happening is amazing. It is really a miracle. You know, we might say, well, I couldn't be mindful because it was too noisy, too many birds. <laughs> but actually, that is not quite the case. We might not have been mindful, or we might not have remembered to be mindful, or we might not have cared about being mindful. But it's not that we can't be mindful because those birds are out there making noise, or because this difficult thing has arisen in our minds, or a terrible circumstance has arisen in our lives. We say that mindfulness doesn't take the shape of what it's watching, which means that it can go anywhere. There is no circumstance we need to try to create in order to be mindful. It's not dependent on conditions coming together in a certain way in terms of the object, And so what an amazing thing that it can go anywhere since the quality of our awareness makes such a tremendous difference in the quality of our lives. One of my very favorite images from the Buddha, which I use quite a lot, is when he said something like, the mind will get filled with qualities like awareness, and loving-kindness moment by moment, just the way that a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. Actually, all four of us were just recently teaching out in California where they had this terribly unseasonable rain, and it just poured and poured and poured rain. And I was um, doing interviews in this very funky little room off the dining room, which had an enormous leak that developed, and we had all these buckets lined up there. So I kept using the example because it was this kind of multimedia display (laughs) of watching these buckets get filled with water drop by drop, and sure enough, they did. (laughs) That's just what happened. I've always really... I use that image so much because it's meant a lot to me, and the reason it's meant a lot to me is because from the very first moment I heard it, I could see myself doing one of two things. One was standing by that bucket and fantasizing, oh, isn't it going to be wonderful when it's completely full? You know, and I would just get lost in all these images and all these fantasies without bothering to add that next drop. And then the other image I had of myself was standing by that bucket and looking inside and thinking, ooh, it's kind of empty in there. It's never going to get filled. And once again, not taking that moment, not having, in a way, the patience and the humility just to add that next drop. But it gets filled drop by drop. That's how it all happens. And so in any moment, there is the possibility of adding that next drop. That's what we really need to do. And there's something to understand, I think, about the force of comparison as well in that example, because another thing to elaborate that image, another thing that we can find ourselves doing, is kind of looking over into other people's buckets and saying, is that more filled than mine? Or, you know, how are they doing over there? But it's peculiar because All we can see is someone else's experience or our imagination, our projection of their experience. We cannot see how they're relating to their experience. And how one relates to the experience is the quality of mindfulness or metta. And that's what adds the drop to the bucket. Those things are, in a way, immeasurable. So it is never that we can look over into someone else's bucket and have a reasonable basis for comparison. How we relate is all important. And every moment that we are mindful, that we practice metta, we are bringing forth some of the great potential of our own being. I think that's why a correct understanding of right effort as expressed in the Buddhist teaching and in our practice, is so essential. Right effort is a very traditional teaching, one of the steps of the Eightfold Path. It means a courageous application of our energy toward full awareness. I've always felt that this concept was very profound, because. It's an acknowledgement of our own very vast potential. In a way, it's almost like a promise that says, if we persevere, we can transform our lives. And it's one of those words that, you know, we can hear it and say, you know, effort, what a drag, you know, what an incredible thing, you know, it's so tiring, you know, I want to make effort. You can't make effort without judgment. You know, what a burden. But actually, I think a correct understanding of right effort reveals it to be one of our greatest blessings because it points again and again to our own capacity for freedom, for growth, for change, to our own potential. It's like the quotation I used in the first night of this retreat from my teacher, Manindra, when he said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. The implications of that are really that we can solve ours. And it's our own effort that can bring this potential to life in every moment when we are aware, when we have metta. Effort is like the unconstrained willingness to persevere, not to neglect this moment, this drop, not to overlook it. It's not meant to be a kind of harsh or straining or desperate effort, but it's really like an ardent and wholehearted remembering of our capacity to be present, to be aware, to see clearly, it's the willingness to stay close to our experience, to see how it evolves, to be patient with ourselves, to let go of our preconceptions. Sometimes I talk about one of my early teachers, this woman, Deepama, who was really an extraordinary being. She had been placed into an arranged marriage when she was just 12 years old. And uh, after many years, she and her husband had three children, and then uh, over the course of some time, two of her children and then her husband died. And she was phenomenally grief-stricken. She was um, literally almost heartbroken. She uh, was in bed... And she said over the course of all of that loss and and grief and terrible times, uh, she couldn't get out of bed, but she couldn't sleep either, and she was just um, suffering horribly. At one point, a doctor said to her, you know, you still have one daughter to raise, and you are literally going to die of grief if you don't do something about your mind. and he, She was living in Burma at the time, and he recommended that she learn how to meditate. So she did. She went off to a monastery, and after uh, some series of obstacles like being bitten by a dog and all this, she did begin to meditate. And when she started practice, she said that she found she was continually overcome by sleepiness. Talking about that time of her practice, she once said to us, when I started doing the meditation, I was crying all the time because I wanted to follow the instructions with full regard, but I couldn't because of sleepiness. Even standing and walking, I needed to sleep. So I was crying because for five years I couldn't sleep because of sorrow and other suffering, but as soon as I started meditation, I could only sleep. When Deepa went to her teacher, who was Manindra, to report her difficulty, he said to her, well, this is really a good thing, you know. Um, he said, this is a very good sign, because for the last five years you were suffering so badly you couldn't sleep, and now you, know, now you can sleep. So simply be mindful. Just stay mindful of what's happening. Deepa continued to sit and sleep, And she says, then one day, all of a sudden, I came to a state where my old sleepiness disappeared, and none came to me even when I sat for some hours. Right effort, in Deepama's case, meant not giving up. It can be that simple sometimes. We have to believe in some way in our own capacity to awaken, to be free to see things in a different way, and keep on adding those drops to the bucket. She reported, Deepama did after her experience of practice, that she would find herself saying to people, come to the meditation center. You've seen how I was disheartened due to the loss of my husband and my children. But now you see that I'm quite happy. There's no magic. I only followed the instructions the teachers were giving and I got peace of mind. So there doesn't need to be magic but there does need to be perseverance and a certain quality of trust or faith that since the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem we can solve ours. And that is the transformative power of right effort. I used to feel in the beginning of my practice that mindfulness as a quality was awaiting me somewhere in perhaps a far distant future. And that it was going to take a lot of ardent effort and strong determination, but somehow, someday, I was going to have a moment of mindfulness. And I used to imagine it sometimes as almost like getting to the top of a mountain and planting a flag. Then it was a a tremendous transformation of my view and my understanding when I realized that mindfulness was not so inaccessible, it wasn't so remote, it wasn't so far away, that it was immediately present when remembered. Mindfulness was immediately effective when remembered. Wasn't that unpleasant experience disappeared? But because my relationship to it changed, everything changed. Wasn't that mindfulness, my mindfulness had to get better, shinier, improved so that it could be as good as somebody else's? Mindfulness has its own nature it's perfect in its own manifestation a moment of mindfulness is a moment of being connected and aware and present with a mind that's open, non-judging and spacious that's the very nature of mindfulness in every moment of its arising, right here and now but it's difficult to remember to be mindful in the middle of a busy life, or a complicated experience with a lot going on in the midst of complicated relationships. It's very difficult, but it's not impossible. What's difficult is not to be mindful, what's difficult is to remember to be mindful. And so we practice in a way so that even in the midst of busy lives and complicated experiences and complicated relationships, we can remember more and more, that it will come forward more and more naturally. Once I had an interview with Sayadaw Upandita, and he said to me, do you believe what the Buddha taught, tricky question, (laughs) do you believe what the Buddha taught, that every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom? And I said to him, oh, yes, Sayadaw, I really believe it. And then he said, don't you think it might be better to actually experience it rather than merely believe it? (laughs) And I said, no doubt. (laughs) And in a way, his comment, in fact, did reduce my doubt in the possibility that I could experience that because we can experience it in every moment since the very nature of mindfulness means that it doesn't demand a certain thing to be happening. We don't have to trade in our experience for something better, something that we imagine someone else has. It's completely available no matter what is going on. In one of the great paradoxes of our lives, it can be said that suffering, as well as freedom from suffering, can arise right here and now both of them taking form right in this body and this mind. There are two phrases in Pali that are used to somehow convey this paradox. One is Kalesa Bhumi and one is Punya Bhumi. Bhumi means place of occurrence or place of arising. Kalesa, as we've probably mentioned before, refers to those qualities that torment us and bring us a strong degree of unhappiness. And panya means wisdom. So simultaneously, our body and our mind can be the location in which both torment as well as wisdom can arise, both unhappiness and freedom. With mindfulness, body and mind serve as the ground for liberation and freedom. Without mindfulness, the very same body and mind can be the foundation for torment. This teaching points out to us that even the most ordinary person who walks the path can succeed. Because it's almost like the basic material for liberation isn't already in all of us. The same body and mind, no matter what it's going through, can be the ground for liberation or for torment. We have to cultivate wisdom and mindfulness and metta, or we'll suffer. And so we practice. We often say that the foundation of remembering mindfulness in many different life situations, is to have a daily sitting practice. To sit every day really brings the practice to life. And this is true both for mindfulness and for metta. Somehow, whether it's sitting or walking or some dedicated time of actually devoting the mind or inclining the mind or aiming the heart toward these qualities, is the most important thing. Which form it takes is less important than that quality of dedicating some time. So we say sit every day, because that's what brings it all to life. That's what makes it real. That's what reveals the, the path to be on the level it really needs to be on. You know, sometimes I tell the story about when I first went to India and I went as a college student in the State University of New York at Buffalo where I had spent a little time studying Asian philosophy and so I'd studied Buddhism. And I'd written term papers on karma and, um, you know, rebirth and had exams on... You know, the Eightfold Path and things like that. And I thought, well, you know, I want to go to India and learn how to meditate, and I really understand something about Buddhism. And then when I actually got there, I think I had done my last paper on the particular teaching of the Buddha called dependent origination, which has to do with the six ways that we perceive the world through seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling um, through the mind door and how every one of those experiences we know as pleasant, painful or neutral and that how we are conditioned to respond to pleasantness with attachment respond to unpleasant experience with aversion, with anger or fear. And we're conditioned to respond to neutral experience with just spacing out, being diluted, or cut off, disconnected. So I thought, oh, well, you know, I really understand that teaching. And then I went to India, and maybe about three months later, I ended up sitting my first meditation retreat, And some of the nightly talks were on those very things I had studied in college, especially dependent origination. And what I saw was that when I was sitting there and it was my knee pain and my back pain and my sleepiness and my restlessness that were the unpleasant experiences I was conditioned to respond to with aversion, with anger and fear, that that term paper really made no difference. (laughs) Everything I had sort of imagined I knew, I didn't know at all because I hadn't really brought it to life in my actual experience, which is where it counts. And that is why I think perhaps especially for us living in the culture in which we live, where we can feel we've really mastered something because... We've written a term paper about it, or we've read a book about it, or we understand it. Maybe we understand it quite well, theoretically. But how well do we live it? You know, what happens when it's our knee pain? It can be very confusing for us. And so it seems very important to set aside some time to actually dedicate oneself to bringing these qualities to life. If you can sit, Perhaps ideally it would be an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. But what I actually think is the most important is that it be every day. It's the everydayness of it. It's that reminder to bring it to life that this is what it's about. So if there's a particular day in which you only have 15 minutes, you don't have to say, well, I only have 15 minutes, so it's not worth doing. It is worth doing. Because even that 15 minutes is an expression of one's commitment and dedication. And so we say, sit every day. Practice, whether it's sitting or walking, will feel very different all the time at home, just as the sittings and walkings can feel very different from hour to hour here. But the protection of the retreat environment is gone, and so concentration itself, which can be a very fragile factor, will go up and down a lot. We all know, for example, it's much easier to get concentrated, for the mind to get still and one-pointed in a quiet place than it is in a noisy place. But we can't control all of the conditions. We can't keep the phone from ringing. We can't keep the sirens from going down the street. We can't keep those birds from singing. And even if we could, we can't keep the mind from thinking. Concentration is a factor that goes up and down a lot. But that doesn't matter, because mindfulness doesn't have to be. Since mindfulness is not based on conditions, being a certain way, in fact, we can be mindful of the quiet, we can be mindful of the sound. We can be mindful of our reaction to the sound, because mindfulness can go anywhere. That's why perseverance is the most important thing. When we get home, there are some sittings that feel great, and some that feel very difficult with the onslaught of all the hindrances. They can be very intense and very difficult. But it's not that some sittings are worth having and some are not, because the most important thing is our relationship to what's going on, not what's going on. So we have to develop some trust in the power of our mindfulness. A very common scenario in people's minds is something like they leave the retreat and they go home, they sit every day for an hour. The first week or so, perhaps there's still the momentum that was developed during the course and concentration is strong and things feel good. Then one day you sit down and it doesn't feel so good. You feel boredom or restlessness or anger your back hurts and your knees hurt, very often people will start thinking, oh, it's not working today. I'll just stop now. (laughs) I'll get up and I'll go about my day and I'll go to work or whatever and I'll sit again tomorrow. It'll be better tomorrow. So we get up and tomorrow perhaps we sit down again and it still feels just as bad or maybe it feels worse and you think, this isn't working at all. You know, I guess you can't really meditate during the week when you have to go to work. So I think the best thing is I won't sit for the rest of the week and I'll sit all day on Saturday. (laughs) I'll turn off the ringer on the phone and I'll just go into retreat on Saturday. And the weekend comes and maybe we do and maybe we don't. But even if we do, it still might not feel very good. So then it's easy to start thinking doesn't work. I can't do it. It's not a good practice. It only works on retreat. I better wait a year till I you know, can get back to IMS and go on retreat or whatever. So we don't sit for a year, and then we come back on retreat. And it's a tremendous cycle of, in a way, needless discouragement or even despair. Because really, there's nothing separate from our power of awareness. There's no experience that needs to be excluded. And we can be mindful of all of those difficulties, as well as all of those lovely, pleasant times. I once went to Manindra with a story, just that story, actually. And I said, this is when I was living in India, but wasn't necessarily on retreat all the time, I said, You know, when I sit and it feels so good and it feels so wonderful and my mind gets so concentrated, I feel so exhilarated and I have so much faith and I know that this practice is just the most important thing in my life. And then I sit and it feels really bad and I get so discouraged and so disheartened and I just give up. Menindra looked at me and gave me quite a wonderful piece of advice. He said just put your body there. That's your job. That's what you have to do. You just put your body there every day, on the cushion, on the chair, however it is you sit. Your mind will do whatever it does, and sometimes it will feel one way, and other times it will feel another way, but you just put your body there. And it was a fantastic piece of advice because it was the true expression of my commitment that that's what I needed to do. And I saw that the rest followed from that. So I would say, just put your body there and trust the process. Learn to trust the power of your own awareness and see that the different experiences are not so important. And if you have a period each day that is dedicated to practice, and you might say perhaps this formal sense, You'll find that there are many instances during the day when you are able to practice metta or practice mindfulness in a rather free, spontaneous way. It was one year here when I was teaching the three-month retreat and I was doing interviews in one of the upstairs rooms, and many, many times in the course of the day I would come downstairs for something and then go back upstairs. So much so that I decided one day that that main staircase was going to be my practice and that every time I went up or down that staircase, I was just going to pay attention. Sometimes I could move slowly, sometimes I couldn't move so slowly, but no matter what speed, I could pay attention. And it was a commitment to breaking the momentum of speed in my mind, to being somewhere other than where I actually was, to come back, not to be ahead of myself, to actually be experiencing those steps. And so that staircase became my practice. I often practice metta, walking down the street, always on an airplane, always in the supermarket, many times during the day when really we don't need to be just waiting for whatever it is to be over so we could be on to the next thing. It's so interesting, you know, when I myself leave a retreat that I've been sitting And sometimes I get into my car, and it's like, as I start to drive away, I watch my hand move out to turn on the radio. And it's so interesting, because actually, I don't really want to hear any music, and I'm not wanting at that point to hear the news. But because I'm no longer in retreat, it's almost like silence is not all right anymore, and that having nothing happening is not okay. I have to fill in the space. I have to make something happen. If I'm mindful enough to catch that, it's like I can see my hand moving out, and I just bring it back. We learn that we can be comfortable without filling every single moment of our day with stimulation. We can relax into simply being. We can pay attention, or we can do metta. Think about how many moments of the day you do just wait. You're waiting online someplace. You're waiting on the phone. You're waiting in somebody's office. Why not, in those moments, be practicing mindfulness or practicing loving kindness. It's wonderful to realize that we don't have to forcibly distract ourselves all of the time. It's like Steve's quotation it's better to do nothing than to waste your time. We can learn to do nothing and to tremendously enjoy our lives. Happiness comes from that quality of connection, from Being able to put forth a wholehearted effort from being actually present with what is instead of waiting for the next great thing. Being able to see the power of our own awareness that it makes a difference how we are relating to what's going on. Those are all the components of that very special kind of happiness. And it's available. There's an example that is used in Burma. It's not exactly politically correct, but an example is something like a hunter goes into the forest to try to capture a bird, but they fail to capture the bird. Then the saying goes on that it doesn't matter if that hunter captures the bird or not, Because what they've done in all of their wandering is to learn the ways of the forest. And that's really what we do in bringing the practice to life, whether it's in the formal sense or in being aware and having loving kindness in the interactions, manifestations of our life. There's no bird we need to capture. There's no special experience we need to have. We need to learn the ways of the forest, the ways of the body and the mind, the ways of our suffering and the end of our suffering. That's how we practice. The quality of joy and happiness that comes, which is so special, is based on seeing clearly, seeing change, seeing the futility of trying to stop that, relinquishing that effort to control what could never be controlled. When we see clearly, we also see that nothing stands alone, that nothing is completely independent, and that, in fact, everything is interdependent. We had this big anniversary celebration for IMS in the summer even though we moved in on Valentine's Day, since you can't really have a party very easily in February in Massachusetts. And in the course of that day, which was quite a wonderful day, we uh, had some young adults who had sat here, people who were in their late teens, early 20s, plant these trees. And it was such an amazing teaching of interdependence because I thought about not only the tree and what would nurture the tree and the soil and the quality of the sunlight and the air and the rain and all of that, but all of the conditions and circumstances and people who brought about this place and through the years of nurturing it, and keeping it going till its 20th anniversary, and all of the different circumstances of all the people who come to sit here, and what brings them here, and you know, uh, pleasant experiences, and times of suffering, and all the different conditions in all of your lives, and the many lives of the people who come here, which is really what the place is all about, is the service of the, the people who come to practice. And then I looked at those young adults and I thought, what about all the circumstances of their lives and all the conditions that had brought them to this place? And, you know, it was such an amazing web of so many different elements. It was almost like the whole universe had come together in that moment to plant those trees. And so it is in our lives. This tremendous web of interconnection is what is revealed in being mindful and in practicing metta. The foundation teachings of the practice are actually the teachings about generosity and morality, because they are the teachings in action that begin to reveal to us that tremendous sense of interconnection. When we think about the teaching of morality, the precepts, for example, they're not considered to be this kind of heavy burden that one must assume to be sort of a righteous, rightful Buddhist, but they're really considered to be the condition of joy and delight. I mean, you know, perhaps from times in this retreat, what it's like to sit and to recall something that you've done or said that wasn't really reflective of harmony of our connection and that it really does hurt. So that out of a great sense of love and compassion for ourselves and for others, we practice with the precepts. We bring them to life, and we use them as times of training, of a much greater level of awareness and insight. There's nothing really separate. You know, we sit in a formal sense so that we can see the fruit of that practice in our daily life and how we behave in our daily life so affects our minds and our hearts that we see how that affects the development of our practice. It's like our lives are all of one piece. They're not separate. They're not split apart. Sometimes people would ask the Buddha, you know, we hear so much stuff We hear so many teachings from different people who wander through these villages. How do we know what's true? And how do we know what's worth following? The Buddha would often respond at first by saying, put it into practice. And then he would go on to point out the various things one could reflect on. He'd say... Put that path you're considering into practice. And if it leads to a decrease in suffering, you can trust it. and Put that teaching into practice. And if it leads to knowledge and intuitive wisdom, almost this feeling like you've been looking at a wall and then it opens up, proves to be a doorway, then you can trust it. He'd say, put it into practice. And if you find you can relate differently to the experiences of your life with less grasping and less anger, if you have more awareness, more compassion, you can trust it. That refrain just keeps on and on. Put it into practice. And put it into practice. Because there's, first, no other way of knowing. For oneself, what is a true teaching and because the teaching exists to support us to sustain us, to protect us and so we put it into practice and in that way can experience the fruit of the Dharma each one of us for ourselves and through that experience we do find that out of great love and compassion for ourselves and for other beings, we wish to lead a life of great sensitivity and care and harmlessness.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com Slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our Amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.